certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. 25 years ago today, Bradley Edwards brutally raped a 17-year-old girl. This is undisputed and it changed her life forever. Hello and welcome to Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo joining you with Legal Affairs Editor Tim Clark, and also joining us from the West Australian John Townsend who you were a crime reporter back then and do you recall this particular incident? I, re- I recall that incident but more particularly I recall the disappearance of Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer and, and Kira Glennon because I was involved in police reporting at the time and I actually did the first press conference when um, when they announced that Sarah Spears had gone missing and and basically put WA onto the onto a trail of that of of 25 years nearly of um, focus on on this event that's uh, that's had such a profound impact on so many lives and on the on the state and the, and the country perhaps for a, nearly a quarter of a century. And it really did um, put a spotlight on Claremont back then because, as we know, Claremont was also the site where we'd had um, notorious serial killers David and Catherine Burney, and they had abducted. You know, three of four out of out of four of their victims from Claremont as well. Yeah, on Stirling Highway, and and a generation earlier than that, Eric Edgar Cook had operated in Cottesloe and and uh, um, Nedlands in particular, in Shenton Park. So, the western suburbs they are uh, yeah. it's known as the Golden Triangle. Triangle, but there's a uh, there's a dark element to the Golden Triangle. Mm. Yeah. We dug through some of the archives of the West Australian from back then and um, this is one of the stories that you wrote and it really does paint this picture of fear back then. Claremont has earned an unenviable reputation as a hunting ground for those who prey on young (laughs) women. The combination of night spots that attract young people apparently indifferent to their safety and dark streets provide substance for the undercurrent of the town's glamorous image. Well, that probably summarises it as well as you could do without patting myself on the back too, too strongly. <laughs> but I mean, I, I guess that that was the the case, wasn't it? G- glamour and glitz on one hand, and and danger and murkiness on the other. And um, generations of of western suburbs people had grown up with no fear, I guess. And um, you would have thought if you'd gone to other parts of town, you wouldn't have. You know, of course, you would have looked over your shoulder, or you would have been far more cautious about how you go about it. Night transport whether you get taxis, whether you get picked up or whatever. But I guess for from from the period of the Burnies, and the, and the Burnies, although they picked up the girls from mostly Stirling Highway, um, they weren't really linked to Claremont. They were, they were passing through, whereas these were Western Suburbs girls. They were out in the Western Suburbs. So many people had been to the Claremont Hotel and Club Bay View and to restaurants and to... They'd, they'd grown up, they'd been to school. The, the, she went to... Uh, Sarah Spears went to Iona. Mm-hmm. Um so many people had grown up with those elements in their lives that, that, that it touched them so much and I know, I know it did for me particularly because I, I grew up in Swanbourne and went to school in the western suburbs and then worked for the west and so much of our attention is what happens in the western suburbs so it it resonated with so many people I think and that's that's probably why it, it bit so hard that you know you've got this contrast between the the, the glitzy you know the millionaires row and 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 that sort of thing with with the dark side and the fact that so many people knew it i mean no one who grew up in perth or lived in perth wouldn't have 
been on Stirling Highway at some point. So it mm-hmm. uh, it really resonated with people, I think. Yeah. So February the 11th, 1995, this 17-year-old is coming home from a night out and she is brutally and viciously attacked. Tim, we might just get you to just recap some of the evidence um, that we've heard about the Karakata rape victim and then we can maybe talk to you to you um, about you know, your memories of that time and how that tied in to what people were feeling about Claremont. Mm. Yeah, so this is in um, 1995, so the year before Sarah goes missing, but it is so remarkably similar to this, this, the stories or the allegations surrounding the murder murders. Um, so this young um, teenage girl had been out for a night out um, and was walking away from Claremont. There's a little park called, it's now called Row Park, uh, which is just off the highway. It's not in the middle of nowhere. We're still slap bang, as John said, in the middle of, of middle of the one of the most salubrious suburbs in Perth. She's walking along there, doesn't sense any sort of danger at all until she is attacked from behind, um, incapacitated, um, tied up, hood placed over her head and dragged very short distance into a vehicle which is nearby uh, placed in the back unceremoniously placed in the back and then driven off your absolute nightmare archetypal horror film scenario of of young innocent girl snatched from the streets uh, under the cover of darkness and gone in, in, in moments the court has been told that it is Mr. Edwards. We know this now because he's pleaded guilty to it. He drives her for quite a while, but only ends up minutes away from where the the abduction has taken place in Karakata Cemetery, which is the main major cemetery in the heart of Perth. Again, a huge sprawling area with dark corners and and it's one of these dark corners that Mr Edwards takes this young woman uh, away from the car takes her out of the car drags her bodily drags her towards a, a, a very secluded corner of the the cemetery and rapes her degrades her twice this is in the early hours of of the morning um and then leaves her for dead comes back picks her up again puts her into a in basically dumps her in the bushes uh, for what reason we don't know like we don't know any of the reasons behind this yet uh, because mr edwards hasn't been sentenced for this but he will be at the end of the trial process um and then drives off and leaves her leaves her as far as she he knows badly injured hugely distressed or possibly worse she uh, this young lady manages to bring herself together enough to be able to get herself onto this the nearby street then takes herself still half naked to the nearby hollywood hospital which is a a, a, not a major hospital but a, a hospital close by raises the alarm and uh and then her parents come or father comes to, to her aid as does hospital staff and then she's and then and then police arrive 
and uh, the next thing police do strangely definitely wouldn't happen these days Johnny's uh, they take her back to the crime scene within hours to get her to recount what's happened and during that process they find her shoes they find her clothes or shorts that she was wearing they collect those which now 25 years to the day later those shorts are somewhere in a vault uh, in police custody and are going to be vital vital pieces of evidence in this this Claremont serial murder trial. And we've heard from lots of the um, hospital staff and the police and security guards who have all been taking the stand and one of the interesting things is one of the security guards um, he uh, remembers seeing a Telstra van at, in the early hours of the morning while he was outside having a smoke. Mm-hmm. So we've been hearing all of these things that are, are sort of tying together and obviously a part of the prosecution's um, case that they're moving it forward to the abduction of the women. Mm, yeah, and this Telstra link to Telstra vehicles, which I'm sure John will, will touch on very br- shortly, it, it, it didn't come to light for so many years, as Alison Fanon has as as very stoutly said so many times in our podcasts um why this why this wasn't known why this link wasn't made public we'll we'll hopefully find out at some stage but we we certainly don't know um at the moment john what were you hearing back then well i well one thing that i can state categorically i as i said i I went to the first uh press conference after sarah spears went missing at a parent's house in south perth there was a couple of policemen there and one policeman, not on the record, but after the press conference, a policeman said to me categorically, when we find this bloke, it'll be the same one who was involved at Karakata with the, with the rape. So one minute into the, into the investigation into Sarah Spears' disappearance, they had made that link, and that link clearly has, has uh, got legs, and, uh, and it's been pursued ever since, but not to the extent that you you think it probably warrants because there are there have been so many holes in this entire investigation from start to finish probably from the the 25 year anniversary today of uh, of the rape at Karakata or the rape at you know the abduction at Row Park and the rape at Karakata to where we are today um, the link was made early whether or not it it gives the police sufficient evidence to pursue it that I mean we we can't really say I suppose but um, it was certainly linked at the time, and um, you know the the police were were pr- had a pretty narrow focus from pretty early on in the piece. Mm. And what's extraordinary, it was also being linked by the victim herself. Mm. And during our research, we found this story, which was um, reported just three days after Jane Rimmer went missing, and the rape victim, in her words, uh, made this statement. I realised that unless they found my attacker straight away, the only way they would catch him would be if he offended again, and I could not bear the thought of that happening to someone else. It was really hard when Sarah Spears went missing because I thought, this person is unstoppable. She is clearly making that link. And I wonder whether the police went back to her at the time. You'd think they would have done. Well, they can't be telling me that there's a link between the two and not going to her and asking for any more information in the in the year or or um just over a year since since it happened well just under a year actually february to january the next year um has any more come to light can you remember anything more of it you know all these sort of things i guess which they would have done as a as a natural follow-up throughout the, that that whole uh, year um 
well, he'd yeah. hope John, because since a report from the West Australian went back to her and she was and she was good enough to talk, then you'd you would very much hope, hope so. that uh, the police were yeah. in touch. And, and we I mean we have heard over the trial process that there was there was ongoing investigations, obviously, because this was unsolved, as were then Sarah and then Jane and then and Kira, but it but the the actual forensic link wasn't made until ma- many many years later yeah, there were, i mean there were and we'd said in those original stories that the the girl at Karakata was one of several attempted or actual abductions and and rapes or attempted rapes and I'd, i did a story only a couple of days after sarah spears went missing and this was the start of the focus on the taxi drivers and, and taxis which became such a uh, such a, an explosive part of the covering of the story for for well over a year or a couple of years um I did a story about a girl who who contacted me and said she'd been at Club Bayview and then the Claremont Hotel, got in a cab on Bayview Terrace, was driving down towards uh, Netherlands, down Bayview Terrace, past the council chambers, and a man was hidden in the back of the cab, jumped up out of a blanket and grabbed her, and she only escaped by jumping out of the car while it was still moving. Uh, Broke her leg, I think, and was pretty badly injured. She was off work for multiple months, so... um, so she she rang and said that had happened in late '94, I think. So coming to the end of '94, um, so that was part of the, I guess the the start of that focus on taxi drivers that that maybe they knew more than they were saying, or one of them might have a rogue taxi driver might have been involved, or it might have been a fake taxi with with uh, lights and whatever. Um, so that was one of them, and then there were several other uh, rapes or attempted rapes around the the vicinity of Claremont in the in the middle early to mid 90s uh, girls walking home from Claremont a couple at Swanbourne train station um, another one near the Swan uh, the Claremont underpass which uh, is halfway between the Claremont and Swanbourne train stations so there was a history of behavior in the in that area that had been going for some years and that I guess that's part of the reason why the police were so quick onto Sarah Spears that mm. One, it was so out of character for her, but two, there was a, a recent history of pretty horrific uh, crimes and attempted crimes in the last several years in, in the area. So I guess they they were already alert to it and they, they moved, um, well, they, they made the connection pretty quickly. Unfortunately, it took a long while for anything more concrete to happen. I mean, you were reporting on this back then, but do you think it was um, more broadly known among the public that these attempted abductions were taking place or or really sort of the public became more knowledgeable when the women started disappearing? I, th- I, think, the, I think the Jane Rimmer disappearance was the critical factor. So until then, there'd been stories about Claremont's a nightclub district, blah, 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 and, you know, people go there and there's a bit of a risk if you're in the wrong spot at the wrong time and these rapes took place. And Sarah Spears went missing and, and it seemed to be an escalation of what had been happening for a couple of years. I think it was not until Jane Rimmer went missing that there was a sudden... It was like the the, the world changed fundamentally in the, in the days after Jane Rimmer went missing, I think, because suddenly there was seen to be that there was a predator targeting uh, Claremont. And until then, it had been a sense that you know behaviour had been had gone the way it had gone, and you know people had paid the price for being out late at night and whatever. Suddenly, it, it changed dramatically, and I think that was the start of then the the sense of Claremont as being a hunting ground for for the predator or predators. Yeah, when um, Bradley Edwards pleaded guilty to the Karakata rape, what did you? 
think at the time that, th- that this admission of guilt had come some 23 years after the event? Well, I think it's a strategic move, wasn't it, over over the DNA? Mm. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is. The, I mean, we've talked about it on on the podcast, and certainly had reams of questions about why he would do that. And and myself and Damien Cripps, our regular legal expert, has, have discussed it too. All we can say categorically is that he, he now admits he was that man um, there were samples obviously taken from the Karakata victim uh, that were kept at Pathwest and they, it is part of the defence story to this that they might be in some way linked to a contamination event with the, the with the, uh, the fingernails of Kira Glennon um, but all we can say for absolute certain and it must have been such a relief for the, the the young lady who was attacked to to actually now know who who did this to her, but her presence for a long time in the in the first part of this the the Claremont trial um, would also suggest that she feels a very strong link to certainly Sarah and Jane and Kira as her words in more than twenty years ago in the paper did suggest. And her presence at the trial, her obvious ongoing relationship with another victim of Edwards, who we now know about, the, the a teenage girl who was attacked in her own bed at Huntingdale, and I've I've seen this now grown woman interact with both uh, Don Spears, Dennis Glennon in court. So mm. there is a bond there that I, I'm sure none of them would want to have in those circumstances but I, I, I get the impression that they are taking strength from each other And has that bond developed throughout this process you, you believe do you, do you, they, would they have known each other prior to this? I'm not, sh- I'm not sure about that Nat but there, are, there were so many hearings uh, pre-trial hearings um, in this matter because it went for so long before we even got to day one of the trial and three years it passed and a lot of the same people that, are, that were intimately involved in the case, obviously the victims' families and the victims surviving, were in the same court at the same time to witness the, the procedure around the same man. So it, it would be only natural for a, a bond to develop there. There are the same police officers that, that liaise, uh, as a, a group of police officers liaise with all the victims and so there's there's a common bond there um, and you can well imagine that uh, that the Karakata victim and the Huntingdale victim would um, would feel akin to to the, the families of these other women who went missing and are alleged to have been killed by the same man who attacked them. That's right. Well, Bradley Edwards, of course, he admits he's an attacker of women. He admits that he is a rapist, but he denies that he is a murderer. John, when uh, these charges were laid after this length of time, that must have come as a, a bit of a bombshell for you. Did you sort of think, oh, I never thought this would happen? Exactly. And and we'd know then been a focus on, on Lance Williams, the public servant who lived in Eric Street in, in Cottesloe. And I, I was out of it by then. I was, I was doing other things at, at the West Australian, but you certainly follow. It's a story that meant a lot to me and, and resonated with me personally and, and professionally from the time. So you follow it reasonably closely, I guess. Um, it was. I mean, and I'm sure it was for a lot of people that they thought 
you know, like any other, you know, there's any number of mysteries, aren't there? The Shirley Finn mystery and other mysteries in WA, you think, well, there'll never be a resolution to it. And then out of the blue, this matter, you know, there's a name put to it. Um, I guess there was a, a level of scepticism because of the focus had, that had been on the on the previous suspect for 20, nearly probably 20 years or more, um, or going back more than 20 years. Um, so there's a, a degree of scepticism about whether he's the right bloke, and that'll that'll play out in due course, obviously. Um, but it's, it, it came as a as a shock, I guess, that finally a, a shock in a good way that finally a name had been had been put to it, and and the police and the, and the legal um, process was taking place after so many years and so many questions being asked and so many not being answered. Did you have a take on the Lance Williams uh, being the suspect at the time? I mean, Alison Fan um, also was reporting back then when you were and, and she was absolutely emphatic that they were looking at the wrong guy. Did you have a feeling... I, I wasn't close enough. I, Alison was doing it on a daily and a yearly basis. I, I wasn't. I'd, I'd moved into into sport at the West in the in the late 90s so from about 98 onwards I wasn't doing any more police and followed it from outside so I wasn't as close as, as Alison. I, I couldn't say categorically that they got the right or the wrong man with Lance Williams but I think the one thing that was absolutely evident was that pretty much all their focus was on him which means that if you've got a spotlight on one person there's a lot of dark shadows around where there's no attention. And the word tunnel vision has been used in this podcast um, previously. I think that's probably possi quite possibly a valid assessment and a valid description of it. I, I, I can say, I mean, there were things that have come out of this, uh, out of the hearing so far, about from the trial so far, that have absolutely shocked and and surprised me. And as someone who covered it and has followed it pretty closely, things like we told and the West reported until two years ago that. Uh, Sarah Spears rang a cab at 2.06 at Stirling Road. A cab arrived at 2.14. So there was an eight-minute window for people to look at to see if she was still there and what had happened. There was evidence given in court um, late last year that a cab driver arrived at 2.09. So suddenly the, the window has dropped from eight minutes down to three minutes. Now, we reported faithfully for, tw for more than 20 years that there was an eight-minute window. Now... The police must have known that this bloke was going to give evidence. He wouldn't have just said in court for the first time ever, <laughs> I arrived at 2.09 after he'd been interviewed for 20-odd years. So that that came as a real shock to me. The other, the other element that came as a real shock, and I think this is even more critical, we reported repeatedly, year after year after year, Sarah Spears rang the cab from a uh, phone box on the west side of Stirling Road in Claremont. That's the coast side of the road. So we reported that. So people... Getting that information would have thought, well, I drove past there and there was no one waiting at that corner or near, near that corner. Evidence was now given in the, in the trial in the last several months. She was waiting on the east side of the road. We'd, it was never once reported that she was waiting on the east side of the road. So the, info, the, the opportunity for members of the public to provide information from 1996 onwards has been denied by that information not being out there. And I, when I, I read those, saw those two pieces of evidence, I was exceptionally frustrated, quite emotional, and very, I mean, I'm still pretty emotional about it, because you think if that information had been passed out at the time, two women might still be with us because of that. So I can see, I mean, look, it's a, it, there's still plenty of water to go under the bridge with this matter, but 
you'll just wonder why false information is allowed to get into the public arena and are allowed to stay there when it could have been uh, clarified and contradicted a lot earlier in the piece. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't as if the reporters weren't asking questions almost hourly, I would have thought, John, when, when particularly after Sarah and then when Jane went missing as well. I mean, there's your, there's another chance to, to, to re, um, reinvigorate Sarah's investigation which uh, as much as there is a man charged now with her murder we still don't know where she is I mean there was I mean unlike the other two girls there was some clarity about where she was at certain times too so there was there was far more precise information that witnesses could uh, relate to than the other two we know that Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon left left the um, Claremont and they, they walked away but it wasn't known whether they walked 100 metres or a kilometre. So that all that information is unclear. Whereas Jane Rimmer, at 2.06, she is put categorically at Stirling Road in, in Claremont. And for many years, <laughs> we said somewhere between 2.06 and 2.14, mm. she vanished. We presume she got into a cab, but she might not have. She might have gone into a car of someone she knew, or there might have been another, another reason why it happened. For it to go down now to 2.09 means that there's a very precise window where someone would have been able to, or may, sorry, not will, may have been able to say, well, I was driving past at that time and I saw her or I didn't see her. So the, the it's a, it's an intensely frustrating yes. part of the, the matter that, that this information was available and it's been sat on. Yes. I mean, we know, of course, police have procedural reasons as mm. to why they play their cards close to their chest. But what you're explaining is that, you know, keeping some of this information back is potentially counterproductive, but also potentially devastating the ramifications of not not putting this information forward. Yeah, well, I mean, the information on the nature of wounds and not that sort of thing is, is invariably kept confidential because, one, it's, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily want to, you know, shock the, the world that's paying attention to it, but equally you want to keep up something up your sleeve. So when you're interviewing potential suspects or witnesses, the police have more information than, than the person they're interviewing knows about so they can you know they can balance it back and forth and, and work out how credible the person is this is a matter about trying to find a girl there was a girl missing they didn't know whether she was dead or alive for the first few days here's an opportunity for them to actually get some information on where she'd gone did she go left did she go right did she go north did she go south i mean these sort of answers these sort of questions weren't answered because no. of that and there was a s- similar Criticisms, not, not 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 quite the same over Jane's disappearance, because there was CCTV footage which we have now seen quite extensively in court. But for for many many years that wasn't shown at all in public, and then um, it was released to um, the the pay TV channel in in Australia, who were doing uh, a, a follow up documentary many many years later, and and lo and behold, this this CCTV um, appeared in the public. Um, arena um, and very similar criticisms well how long have you had this why haven't you released it sooner um, this could this is this an opportunity missed and so uh, John's frustrations have been felt by a couple of generations of journalists I think yep. that have covered this case I'm I'm in the lucky position that everything's being laid on a plate for me mm. when I sit in court every day um, but when I w- you know, interacting with with journalists that are still working but were working back then like, like John like 
Gary Adsed, another of our colleagues that's done sterling work on this, and Alison Fan, they all say the same thing. Why wasn't this out there? The Telstra link, the vid, the, the CCTV, and now John's explaining about the the, to the time lapse. And uh, uh, they're valid questions. The police might not like us raising it, but they are valid questions that will be raised, not just by us, um, by uh, a lot of people in the uh, in the on the street in Perth and they've been raised with me in social occasions many times over the last few months and uh, I think they will continue to be raised. Yeah. I, I can say that I mean there was a considerable amount of tension between media and police at the time and, and it's understandably so because it was a it's a it's a gruesome crime and, and invo- involving young women who and you can understand the police trying to do the absolutely do the right thing by them and their families to try and find out what what happened and from our point of view we were very frustrated because the the information that was released was often contradictory was often very sketchy provide didn't provide very much so the natural um, uh, response to that sort of thing is you've got to fill the vacuum you know the the pages 500 words on it and if the police provide 200 300 are going to come from somewhere else that's that's just a natural um, part of what happens in the media and I'd, I'd look at you know into issues that arose over the over the several years that I was involved in covering this that the tension that happened between the police and there was a mostly there was a quite a good relationship I think between Paul Ferguson and Dave Capon and, and members of the media because they they understood that you know we were required to get stuff out there and information for the for the public to respond to we relied them on them for stories as well. So there was a, you know, there's a relationship between them, but it was a tense relationship. Sometimes it, it didn't go that well, and things. And when the, the cab, the focus was on the cab drivers, and they did, you know, surveys, and you know, they asked, they put out surveys with questions like, "Did you kill? Did you abduct and kill Sarah Spears?" And not surprisingly, I think 100% of cab drivers said, answered it the way you'd expect them to. And then the the police were. Uh, you know, there appeared to be quite a, a level of anger and, and hostility that, about the reporting of that sort of thing. And you go, well, how are you, what are you going to say? I mean, if you're going to ask a cab driver, did he kill someone? And he says no, it, it's going to appear ludicrous, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. I remember having actually some tension with one of the policemen because they they used the wrong day and the wrong date on the, on the disappearance of, of one of the girls. Um, and I remember at a press conference asking, is this, deli-, you know, we're sort of stumbling in the dark a fair bit. Is this deliberate that you've actually put the wrong day on the wrong date? So it might have been Monday the 29th, and in fact, the Monday was a uh, Monday was the 30th, and that caused quite a bit of a blow up about how insulting and don't you you know lack of respect and all that sort of thing. And we we thought it was genuine. It, there seemed to be such a a level of, as I said, stumbling in the dark that maybe it was deliberate that they put the wrong day and date on it to try and trap someone. Uh, and apparently it wasn't. <laughs> well, um, I mean, and at the end of the day, everyone would have had the same goal, and that is to get a result. Yeah. Really. Uh, absolutely. Um, reporters are often accused of being vultures or, you know, tr- trying to profit off someone else's grief. I know during the trial process, um, everyone I, I sit next to write with talk to that they've got three things to fair and accurate reporting of a trial which is that's basic respect the victims that those three young women that were taken from their families and do it 
in a, in a way that is is going to um, honour them, but you know, make the story as interesting and as relevant as as possible. Um, and th there have been times during the trial where I've seen journalists upset, um, sometimes very upset, because they are getting some feedback um, that that you know some of the very close people to this case are not happy with the reporting and you know I'm sure that was the the goal 25 years ago as well to get as much mm -hmm. information out there as possible so we can try and solve this to try and help the yeah. community uh, find the person who, who's doing these things yeah I've looked back at it too and I've, I have no, absolutely no doubt that when the policeman told me at that first press conference that there was a link between the Karakata rape and Sarah Spears disappearance that was fundamentally designed for one reader and that was the bloke who'd done it mm -hmm. to put him on on notice that we're on your case and we're you know we're on your trail um may have taken 25 years yeah. to get to the end of the trail but mm -hmm. i'm sure that was the so that was one area one element of police using media i guess and and we we're happy to be used in that circumstance because that provides a an interesting detail and a and a, a profound detail actually to to into that story um but i'm sure that's what that was designed to do was to put to when that bloke read that story and I'm, we all expected that he would do he would see that there's a link we know that we know what you've done it's only a matter of time yeah the reality is that journalists over the years have been so incredibly close to this story but not just journalists the general public have felt so incredibly close to this story and you were getting quite emotional when you were speaking about the fact that this information was withheld. Why Why do you think for you personally this has really stuck with you of the thousands of stories that you've covered in your time? I th look, I, th I think it's like the, the AFL grand final. It's just bigger. It's bigger than anything else. It's like, you know, you, you I guess in your career, per, from a personal point of view, you, you're in your career and you go up and things you, you go to bigger and bigger events and, and this was one of the biggest ones it, would, it involved so many people it was so uh, potent as a, as a story we ran pages and pages and pages and we're doing it again now 25 years after it, it first came to light it, it is reflecting that the fact that it that it is bitten with so many people I, th I think we, we, you know, we, we drive it obviously in some regard but I think it's the the massive amount of reporting and the emotion attached to it is reflected of the impact that it's had on people. And for so many people, I mean, you, you can relate to, you know, an 18 year old girl who went to Iona, who worked in the western suburbs, lived lived near, or lived in South Perth, but um, socialised in the western suburbs. How many thousands and thousands of people have either done that or have got relatives or friends or family members or whatever? have done exactly the same thing so it's one thing i guess for you know a volcano to blow up and and kill people you look at that and it's quite exotic but how many people do you know have done that or have you done it yourself how many people do you know have actually been to the claremont hotel or club bayview or been down bayview terrace or sterling highway everyone, everyone. so everyone. it's it's a it's a story for everyone yeah. i think and that's that's probably why it it has stuck with people that one at uh, one level it's so high above everything else you do and on another level it is so common that you, you it, it means something to to the reporters and it certainly means something to the readers that's right um tim it might be a good idea now if you were to maybe just uh tell us what the prosecution say links the karakata rape victim 
to Bradley Edwards and to the disappearance of the three women. Yeah. So this this is part of the, the narrative that uh, Carmel Barbagallo made clear before the trial and made very clear on, on day one and day two of the trial during her opening address. Uh, we know it's Mr Edwards that, that has committed this crime in Karakata. But what the prosecution say is, we, yes, we know it's him, and now we know it's him, we can definitely make the link to, to Jane, to Kira, on a number of levels. When these shorts were collected in, in that early morning, uh, they were immediately put under some scrutiny, obviously, including tape lifts were, were, were made from them, and those tape lifts were then uh, preserved uh, forensically. Um, and what Ms. Barbara Gallo says is during that very, very early stage on those tape lifts, there were some fibres that were taken from the shorts, um, the Karakata victim shorts, that were, that were distinctive. They were blue in colour um, and they, they, they came from somewhere that, that wasn't... Um, uh, that wasn't it. The, the victim's um, source material. Those blue fibres, the prosecution say, are, were distinctive and very unique to a particular fibre that was um, made for Telstra that, that was then produced there. Short, sh the shorts that their staff members wore and the work pants that they wore. And we now know that Mr. Edwards was employed by Telstra for many, 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 many years up until his arrest. And they say that those fibres were on Ms. Uh, this, this, the victim's shorts, Karakata victim's shorts, but the same fibres were also in Jane's hair when her hair was examined post-mortem and Kira's hair and Kira's shirt, which were also recovered from where her body was found in Eglinton um, and then analysed. Um, this fibre evidence we haven't got to yet, but it's going to be a major portion of the trial to come, maybe next month, we think. The second link is that the intimate swabs that were taken from the Karakata victim, as all sexual assault victims have to endure in, a, in an effort to try and find the, their attacker, that, that those intimate swabs were analysed at the time and then some others were stored and analysed much later. When they were analysed at the time, even in 95, 96, with the relatively primitive DNA testing that went there, they, they found a very clear and positive match to some male DNA that was on those swabs, which was placed into the database as it, uh, as it um, existed at the time. Unknown male four was the, uh, was the, was the moniker it was given. And then many, many years later, um, when Kira's DNA was uh, tested on the fingernails in, in 2008 in the UK, Kira's DNA was obviously on there, but there was another male on there as well. The prosecution say that when those DNA uh, samples were sent back to the Perth and placed into the database, the same match came up with Karakata. And so that is the key link that prosecution say takes us all the way through from 95 to 97 and then to 2008 and now today and that is that that dna match um, is, is what we've been exploring for the last uh, th 
two two and a half weeks and we've got we've got many more weeks of dna evidence to come and hopefully we'll be back in court tomorrow after this uh, two-day adjournment that we've had, which was discussed in the podcast yesterday. So uh, we'll soon find out whether the court will continue tomorrow or not. Before we leave you today, um, we have a listener question. And John mentioned earlier that he now is a sports writer. In fact, he's the chief cricket writer. And we have a, a question from a listener who, a name you might know, Cameron Bancroft, who is a regular listener of the podcast. And he has asked, my question is relating to the Karakata rape and the way the victim was disposed of, even though she was alive, and the comparison to the disposal of the bodies of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon. Will Bradley Robert Edwards be asked at all if he thought the Karakata rape victim was alive when he threw her body into the bush post-rape? Obviously, if that were true, a strong link could potentially be made to the disposals of both Jane and Kira especially if the victims had not resisted his force, should he be the killer? I mean, interesting question, Tim. Very, very interesting question and draws in a lot of the similarities that the prosecution mm. say uh, f- between Karakata and the, the modus operandi that was, that was used to abduct, certainly abduct Jane and, and, and Kira. And, and we know Sarah went missing from at the, the same time of night, from the same geographical area, the same part of the weekend, and has never been found. Um, Bradley Robert Edwards, in his six and a half hour police interview, was asked um, continuously about Karakata and denied it, which is an... It, it, which is interesting in itself, the prosecution say, because they, they, they are something called Edwards lies, or the, so the prosecution say, which is a consciousness of guilt. You are lying about something, um, not because you didn't do it, because you, but you know you did. And they can now make that uh, claim because he has since pleaded guilty. So we are yet to hear that interview. We will see it in full um, in Glorious Technicolor in court and it will be very interesting to not only hear what Bradley Edwards has to say about those particular questions but to his body language as well because as we've discussed so many times in court he see, he's a very impassive person. He doesn't show much emotion at all in court um, and so it will be very interesting to see how he responded to those questions when they were first put to him on in in the days before Christmas in 2016, after he was arrested. Um, whether whether Cam's point about the way um, the Karakata victim was disposed of so callously in 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 in, in Karakata in bushes, um, and whether there will be a link drawn but by the prosecution to the way that um, Jane and Kira's body were discard, disposed in remote areas and then covered with local vegetation um, that's something we'll have to wait and see um, for Miss Barbara Gallo's opening but um, if if Cam is drawing those um, comparisons um, from his interest in the case then I'm sure many others have and uh, it, it could be something that Miss Barbara Gallo uh, draws on as well I guess the other element too is whether uh, Bradley Edwards actually decides to give evidence and, that, and that's a matter that mm. I guess is still some some. That is while the away. single most um, asked question of me uh, mm. during all my coverage of the trial so far. Um, everyone wants to know this. We will never. We well, it's not. We'll never know. We will not know until right um, until the end of the prosecution case when the judge will uh, flatly ask uh, Paul Jovich, "Does your client uh, wish to give evidence?" Um, I'm assuming Mr. Jovic might have to give some indication pr- 
prior to that because two things possibility of cross-examination miss barbara gallo has to be has to know what what she's up against and two the length of the trial uh, physically um it's it's gone for months already we've got months to go if mr edwards does give evidence i'm sure it will add weeks to the trial um in uh, in his evidence in chief and then cross-examination as well so um that's the the question that everyone's asked including our editors asked me very many times john whether whether i know the answer is no i don't but uh we, we will find out one way or the but other. it's it's his fundamental right isn't it to decide whether to give evidence well, or not and absolutely and, doesn't have to but if he does want to the i mean the trial can't be cut short because he he's given a deadline I mean, oh he, can't, he can't speak for no. two and a half years, obviously, but he no. can. He, he obviously is, is uh, will be given the opportunity if that arises. Yes, and, to, and, 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 if, and, if the, and if he does choose that right um, to give evidence, the judge will no doubt ask, uh, uh, ask for a a guesstimate of how long it might take. Um, how long's a piece of string? Um, it could be could be weeks. We don't know. Yep. But uh, but it, just for the functioning of the trial and the the um, the mechanics of the trial. Um, it will be a, it'll be a question that will become more and more important at the further on into the prosecution case we get, because then the defence starts, and that's and that's that, that's what everyone's going to want to know. Yeah. Well, when that decision is made, I'm sure that Tim Clark will be the first to find out because he is on the front foot with everything that is happening in court. Thank you both for joining us, John. Thank you so much for Thanks coming in. Um, you'll obviously be continuing to follow the case very closely. I am, and like Cam Bancroft, I'm a I'm a pretty keen uh, listener to the podcast as well. We'll have you back in that case. <laughs> um, if you'd like to contact us or if you'd like to contact any guests that we have on the podcast, you can email us at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au and we'll be back tomorrow for day 43 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.